0: Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. an honor to be together as we get to continue to study God's Word. We're in the book of Leviticus, and tonight, today, this morning, we are beginning Leviticus 2. Let's pray together. Our Father, we're just so thankful that we are together, together to study Your Word, together to be confronted by Your living, breathing, active Word. Father, may Your Word do its work in us as we do our work by your grace in studying your word. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. It's an interesting pattern that we've seen in the book of Leviticus, so much detail, so much of the detail concerning the sacrifices to be brought, most importantly, as we have seen, the burnt offering. The burnt offering, as we have seen had a substitutionary character to it. It wasn't so much that the the word was used as that the entire setting is substitutionary. Clearly, this is an animal who is dying in the place of another. That picture made very clear by the fact that one who brings the burnt offering, whether it be from the herd or from the flock, He takes his hands and puts it upon the head of the animal. We're not told there was a transference there in any metaphysical way. That's not the point. That that instead will be developed far more fully when it comes to the sacrifice of Christ as we read about it in the book of Hebrews. But the point is that in contrast, this second offering, which we find in Leviticus chapter 2, it is different. There's no blood here. There is no death of a, of a living animal here. Instead, this is sometimes referred to as the cereal offering or the grain offering. And, and so we'll, let's read it a bit, and then we'll go back and consider what confronts us here. When anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be a fine flour. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests, And he shall take from it a handful of the fine flour and oil with all of its frankincense, and the priest shall burn this as its memorial portion on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. When you bring a grain offering baked in the oven as an offering... It shall be unleavened loaves of fine flour mixed with oil or unleavened wafers smeared with oil. And if your offering is a grain offering baked on a griddle, it shall be a fine flour unleavened mixed with oil. You shall break it in pieces and pour oil on it. It is a grain offering. And if your offering is a grain offering cooked in a pan, it shall be made of fine flour with oil. And you shall bring the grain offering that is made of these things to the Lord And when it is presented to the priest, he shall bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take from the grain offering its memorial portion and burn this on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. No grain offering that you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven, for you shall burn no leaven nor any honey as a food offering to the Lord. As an offering of first fruits, you may bring them to the Lord, but they shall not be offered on the altar for a pleasing aroma. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. If you offer a grain offering of first fruits to the Lord, you shall offer for the grain offering of your first fruits fresh ears roasted with fire crushed new grain. And you shall put oil on it and lay frankincense on it. It is a grain offering. And the priest shall burn as its memorial portion, some of the crushed grain and some of the oil with all of its frankincense. It is a food offering to the Lord. Now I am going to surprise, I think none of you, at least of all my wife, by saying that I am not really a cook. I can toast bread. I can make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. There are some very rudimentary things I could do. I want you to know I once was a cook. I once was a cook for an elderly lady. Putting myself through seminary, I was in the position of having too little money, and I needed a place to live. I needed to be able to stop paying rent and stop the outflow of money. I was an unmarried single seminary student. There was a notice on the bulletin board. It said that an elderly lady in Louisville wanted a young seminary, a young man, a young seminarian, to live in her house, and the room would be free. And the young man, basically there for her security, um, would also be paid thirty-five dollars a week to cook for her. And then there, were, like other duties, as assigned which turned out to be one of the most interesting experiences of my life, included disposing of dead dogs, all kinds of things that were not in the job description. (laughs) But nonetheless, it was also an experience in geriatric ministry. She was 87 years old, going on 175. (laughs) She was a very dear lady. I cooked for her. The only problem was I took the job with no knowledge of cooking whatsoever. When I was living alone, I tried to make fried chicken. I made the most beautiful fried chicken I'd ever seen in my life. I was so proud of it. I sat down to eat it. Sam the cat was watching me, suspicious that this would not turn out so well. It looked so good until I cut into it. It was raw inside. It looks so beautiful on the outside. Recipes are not easy to follow, well, at least they're not easy to follow for me. I, uh, I'm sure I could learn to do whatever I would need to do to survive. Mary started cooking something new for me. She found out that I really liked it. She very kindly went and decided that she would cook it. She makes it marvelously. It's better than I've ever had. It's a chicken and dressing, Southern style. She found a video, not just a recipe, but a video. This lady defines Southern lady cooking chicken and dressing in her kitchen. She walks you through the whole process. Trust me, it's a process. You get any part of it wrong, It will not turn out right. If it doesn't turn out right, her mother will be disappointed with us all. Following the recipe is uh, such that you miss one part, you skip one step, you get one thing wrong, and the entire thing is invalidated. Well, that's true in cooking and in recipes. It's far more true when it comes to something like the grain sacrifice or the cereal sacrifice. It's not just that the right things have to be present. It's not just that the right things have to be done. It is the right things have to be present in right order, and the right things have to be done in right order. Otherwise, this will not be pleasing to the Lord. And you look at this, and and again, what strikes us is the fact that God is so scrupulous in his own self-definition, in his own revelation concerning which offerings are acceptable to him and how, that Israel, and this is just really crucially important, Israel is not coming up with any of this, none of this. Do you recognize how absolutely absent from this entire picture is any creativity on the part of Israel? Israel isn't told, you know, be a little creative in this. Be, be creative, kind of, in how the priests are going to dress. You know, you guys, you guys got artistic skill. Uh, you know, do something with color. You know, you got some fashion people. But no, as we saw, as we went through Exodus, the exact, the exact color, the exact pattern, the exact fabric, everything is defined by God. So also in the sacrificial system. Now, now this gets to something, even as we just understand what we do as a church in worship it's not a one-to-one example in in the sense of the same thing but it is the same issue and this is why the reformers in the 16th century and their heirs have been so determined to follow a regulative principle in worship which is to say that our worship is regulated by scripture we we do only the things that God commands in scripture for worship and we do all the things that God commands in worship for scripture the, uh, the regulations concerning Christian worship are by no means as detailed and repetitive as, as we have in Leviticus for the sacrificial system, but the principle is the same. God doesn't say to his people, hey, be creative, figure out how to worship me. Surprise me today. That is just not the way God acts. That's not what God does. And you see that even here with the cereal offerings. And when you think, well, this might be an easier uh, or, or at least a, a less, um, uh, there might be less pressure in thinking about the, 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 the peace offering that comes as a, in this case, the, uh, the grain offering, which we're thinking about with the, with the wheat in particular, the flour, because after all, nothing, nothing's dying here. But notice the specificity. The Lord, remember, spoke to Moses, called out to him and spoke to him. And he says, when anyone brings a grain offering, so this is to be regular. This isn't to be unusual. Bringing a grain offering is to be something that happens from time to time. Now, notice that the word sacrifice is not used of this offering. And it is because it is not a sacrifice in the sense of anything dying. It is an offering. It is the bringing of something to the Lord symbolically. And, and what do we do in, in this? What is the purpose in this? It basically is thankfulness. Thankfulness for the, the crop that the Lord has given. Thankfulness for the grain that the Lord has provided. It is, it is thankfulness. When anyone brings a grain offering, as an offering to the Lord. His offering shall be a fine flower. Now, as you think about the the cereal offering, there are some ingredients that are mentioned. Flour, frankincense, oil, and salt. Those four. Flour, frankincense, oil, and salt. Now, three of those are edible. One of those is not. So the flour and the oil and the salt are edible. That would be used in the making of bread, leavened or unleavened. Frankincense, not. This is to be brought to Aaron's sons, the priest. So again, this is the Aaronic priesthood. And he shall take from it a handful of the fine flour and oil with all of its frankincense, and the priest shall burn this as a memorial portion on the altar a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So the way this offering would be given is that a certain token would be, would be brought, a certain amount of grain mixed with oil and mixed with salt. The salt would, in the cooked offerings, as we shall see, actually be used to cover the outside of the cooked offering, but when it's first mentioned, it's an uncooked grain offering, and when it's brought, it is the fine flour, and it is the oil, and, uh, and it is the salt, and then the priest will take a portion of it to burn on the altar, and this is where the frankincense comes in. The frankincense is evidently added to that because if the frankincense had been added to the first, uh, at the first and and was of the whole, no one could eat it. You don't eat flour that is uh, mixed with frankincense. But it is is the part that is burned. And you can understand how the aroma would then rise to, to the Lord. And we're told if it's done rightly, it is a pleasing aroma to the Lord, which is the purpose. That means an acceptable sacrifice. And so, as you bring the grain itself, the flour, Portion is taken, it having been mixed with with oil and with salt, frankincense is added, it is put on the altar and it is burned. Now the next part's important because we are told that the rest of it is for the priests themselves, but the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. Several things here. So this is the means whereby the priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood, will be fed. That is the regular, the regular bringing of these offerings and the, the sequence of these offerings that will provide food for the priests to eat. And uh, as we see, some of these are actually cooked that will follow. But the point here is that this is regular food. This is not unusual food. That also tells us something about the nature of worship. It is, it, this is not something that is exotic. This food that God requires in this offering is what comes from the crop that Israel has been growing. They were not sent to find some exotic herb or some exotic plant that they were to bring for a sacrifice. And this gets back to what we find in Scripture is the centrality of bread, the centrality of grain. It is uh, true, as Jesus will say in the Great Temptation, repeating scripture, man cannot live by bread alone. But the fact is we really can't live without it either. If you have a civilization and the civilization starts with food uh, in terms of food that is raised, uh, agrarian, agricultural food, then grain is going to be the first thing that is raised. It's the first necessity. And it is also tied to the previous chapter, because what you must have if you are going to have livestock is the food that the livestock will need as well. And so you put all this together, and it's interesting to know that what God requires is what is represented in the very cycle of Israel's life, the the grain cycle and the the animal cycle, the agrarian agricultural cycle. the, The cycle means that they are reminded that this is what they would eat that's the important thing to recognize this is this is what they would eat it is a costly sacrifice it's not exotic something that's outside their dietary pattern no it's actually the very stuff of their own dietary pattern and so the regularity of it the closeness of it all of this just impressed upon Israel the fact that uh, that God is putting demands on them making claim on The normal, everyday necessities of life. In verse 3, something interesting occurs. We are told, But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. What's interesting about that is that this is the first time in Leviticus a certain phrase emerges, and we need to think about this phrase. We need to be aware of it. It is a most holy thing. And now that's an unusual uh, phrase when you think about it, because all things that relate to the Lord are holy. And in, in, of course, the New Testament, and Peter will tell us that uh, we must be holy because God is holy. God tells Israel that Israel must be holy because he is holy. And anything related to him is holy. The Trisagion from Isaiah chapter 6 in Isaiah's vision will remind us that God is holy, holy, holy. But this is referred to, this portion for the priest is referred to as a most holy thing. Now, that's a distinction from the rest of what's been discussed. The entire sacrificial system is a holy thing. So why is this a most holy thing? We're going to be tracking that phrase, most holy thing, because it's an amplification that is to get our attention. Now, why is that used right here? We don't know. We don't know. We just know that God said that portion that is for Aaron and the priest is a most holy thing, which is to say this must be done. This is is my command. This is an absolute necessity. This is an extension of and representation of my holiness in such a way that it is a most holy thing. Now, what does that say? Well, at least we do know this. It elevates the priesthood. It elevates the priesthood in such a way that the priesthood was not developed and then it was as if, well, we got to have something for these priests to do. Let's come up with a sacrificial system. Let's come up with an offering system. No. The priesthood was established precisely in order to maintain Israel's, I'm going to say worship in this case, not meaning a worship service, but they're in in the same sense that in Romans 12 is your reasonable worship, your right worship. This is the right response to God. God puts it all together himself. The priesthood, and remember the priesthood is there. And we saw the priesthood in Exodus. But now the priesthood's portion is referred to as a most holy thing. I found, and always have found, the next verses in Leviticus interesting and the, interesting because all of this is specified in such a way. When you bring a grain offering baked in the oven, oven as an offering, it shall be unleavened loaves of fine flour mixed with oil or unleavened wafers smeared with oil. So the first way a cooked offering might be cooked is in an oven. Now, what's a beautiful picture? I don't think they're... There are many things that smell better than bread cooking in an oven. You know, so much so that the old uh, suggestion was, if you want to sell your house, you know, bake bread in the oven. People are going to want to live in this place. It's a, I it's a, won't say, I almost said, lost art. It's not a lost art. It's just a becoming lost art. Very few people seem to know how to bake bread. There was a renaissance, maybe a very brief renaissance, we were told, in bread making During the shutdown of COVID, and uh, there was there were some fascinating articles. One of them appeared in the New York Times about how New Yorkers tried it and dropped it because they couldn't do it. Uh, You know they had all these grandiose designs of these wonderful organic, carefully crafted and cultured, locally sourced breads they were going to make, and they came out looking like lumps or pancakes. It was not not what was intended I do know that man cannot live by bread alone but I sometimes think I could try here we're told of uh, bread in loaves baked in an oven now that raises another picture what does this oven look like What what would Israel consider an oven well we do know they were usually banked on the floor with clay walls. So it's like a clay box put on the floor, maybe dug slightly into the floor. And you can understand why. You wouldn't want to uh, do something that's gonna set everything on fire. Uh, you need convective heat. You, know, you need the walls of this oven, not just to contain the heat, uh, but to retain and radiate the heat. Clay, uh, once fired, has this effect. And so these would often be something like a clay box, there would be a clay top, clay walls, the bottom might be clay or the bottom might just be the dirt Uh, there on the floor. There would be a fire and there'd be some way to close uh, or to at least uh, keep the opening of of the oven very small and it would work just like an oven we have today. It is true that in many parts of the world today, Ovens are exactly like this even now. An oven allows for the making of bread into loaves more than the second two means or technologies of cooking would allow. God says, if you do, cook in an oven. It must be unleavened bread. We're going to talk more about that in a moment. It is, again, to be fine flour mixed with oil or unleavened wafers smeared with oil. And then, as you see in verse 5, and if your if offering is a grain offering baked on a griddle, it shall be a fine flour unleavened mixed with oil. Now, a griddle in this case might well have been a flat metal surface uh, just over a fire. And this flat metal surface, you could have something to be fairly wide. And uh, you could make just what is described here. And You would take this unleavened bread and uh, break it in pieces, pour oil on it. It is a grain offering. And then in verse 7, and if your offering is a grain offering cooked in a pan, it shall be made of fine flour with oil, and you shall bring the grain offering that is made of these things to the Lord. And when it is presented to the priest, he shall bring it to the altar. The priest shall take from the grain offering its memorial portion, hold on to that, and burn this on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So three different ways of technology. And, uh, you know, we, we still do this today. We still do. I see it done. I see it done in my house. I don't see it done in my house the same way exactly it was done in my grandmother's house or my mother's house. I'll tell you what, women just don't cook exactly the same way. They learn from each other and influence one another, but every single cook's got her own way of doing this. My mother and my grandmother made cornbread in a skillet. And by the way, this skillet was never to be washed. You simply don't know how to use a skillet if you wash it. It ruins the whole point. That's why all the newspaper's stacked there in the corner of the kitchen. So at the end of cooking, my grandmother would grab the newspaper, roll it up, and rub out whatever was in the... Uh, whatever was in the, the frying pan, cast iron, probably 800 years old, probably sought by the Centers for Disease Control for all kind of analysis, <laughs> and she cooked it, and, and as you know, that, uh, that cast iron with all that flavor in it, it flavored that, that cornbread. I never imagined cornbread that would be cooked any other way. didn't recognize that it's cornbread. I hear some imposter being brought to me. But, uh, but there is cornbread that's cooked in the oven. And it comes out kind of higher, and it's, it's not real. But nonetheless, that, that, that's, that's the way sometimes it's done. But it's a different thing, isn't it? The point is, it's a different thing. What's cooked in the oven actually is a different texture. So it's, it's, it's a different kind of loaf, a different kind of product. Mary does uh, all three. She cooks in the, uh, in the oven, she cooks on the griddle, and she cooks with a pan. All, all kinds of different things. The point is, again, this is just normal, isn't it? This is, ju- this is just normal. The same way that for a family, a, 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 a portion of bread may be cooked in the oven or on a griddle or in a pan so likewise this can be brought to the lord which again points to the commonality of this this is bread there's no more common food element to human life and and then these are the three ways that israel might cook them and and any one of them is all right and not only that uh the the priests get the larger portion of this and it is for them food that what distinguishes What they will use in the offering is that it is a small portion and it's mixed with the frankincense in order to be burned on the altar so that it's a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But notice something here. And and we saw it, we've seen it before, but just look at verse 9. And the priest shall take from the grain offering its memorial portion. Memorial portion. Now what does memorial mean? It, It means this is for memory. This is for memory. So, this particular offering is for Israel always to remember what? What? Who provided the grain? What does it mean to return a portion to the Lord, much like the first fruits offering, which will follow, a portion to the Lord, just to remember who gave this food? This food is not self explanatory. In a world in which too little water would mean drought, too much water would mean flood, the very gift of the, of the weather, the gift of all the requirements of growing this grain, this requires thankfulness to God. But the word here is just so important. It says this is a memorial portion. And why is this important? It is because all of this is implied... In the Last Supper, when Jesus spoke of the Last Supper as a memorial meal, do this in memory. It's even carved on this furniture behind me. This do in remembrance of me. It's a memorial. This is an important part of worship. When we gather together, we are remembering what must be remembered in order for God to be honored and for we to know who we are. Now, there are also some no's, what you can't do. We read it, but let's just look at it again. Verse 11, no grain offering that you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven, for you shall burn no leaven nor any honey as a food offering to the Lord. Interesting, interesting. Why this? Now, remember, remember back to Exodus. Remember when the children of Israel were fleeing Egypt. Why did they eat unleavened bread? It's because in haste they did not have time for the bread to rise. So they, they, were, they were rescued by God. They were led out of captivity to Pharaoh in Egypt by God's saving act. And there was not time for the bread to rise. Unleavened bread reminds us of the suddenness of God's delivery. God's rescue comes. And when God's rescue comes, you don't have time for bread to rise. You eat the unleavened bread. Unleavened bread then became a central part of Israel's identity and a special part of Israel's worship. The, the people of Israel were not ordered. I hear misconceptions about this from time to time. They were not ordered only to eat unleavened bread. They just weren't. And uh, you go to a Jewish bakery today, you can eat leavened bread. But for the Passover, it is unleavened bread. For the sacrifices that Israel was to bring, and this way I, I said the wrong word, the offerings, the offerings that Israel was to bring, as we're reading here in Leviticus 2, those offerings are to be of unleavened bread. Now there's something else, however, and that is that if we had time, we could do a word study and a word context study in the Bible on leaven. It doesn't turn out too well. It doesn't turn out too well at all. Leaven turns out to be a metaphor for poison. Um, Leaven turns out to be a metaphor for evil and how evil spreads, how sin spreads. Repeatedly in the New Testament, we'll find warnings about the leaven of the Pharisees. Now, what does that mean? About the Pharisees' bakery? You know, Joe Pharisee's bakery, leavened bread, watch out no it's clearly the infectiousness of their teachings it's 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 the leaven in this case is very negative jesus in the gospel of matthew will refer to leaven and uh, leaven will be used as one of his micro parables in which uh, a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump so the absence of leaven here is not by accident it's by the Lord's decree. No grain offering that you bring to the Lord. So this, the, the, the case here is made. The stakes are high. Shall be made with leaven. For you shall burn no leaven nor any honey as a food offering to the Lord. Now, I know where, honey, where did that come from? What, 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 what's wrong with honey? Well, sometimes we aren't exactly told why God does what he does, says what he says, requires what he requires. That's just not, it's not given to us to know all these things. We do know a couple things about honey. For one thing, honey will start a process in bread. And evidently that is not supposed to take place. This is this is again, this is just flour and oil. All that's it. And the salt. The salt and the uh, the flour and the oil so it's very interesting here no grain offering shall be made with leaven Burn no leaven nor any honeys a food offering but then look at verse 12 as an offering of first fruits you may bring them to the Lord but they shall not be offered on the altar for a pleasing aroma. So God says, you can bring as a first fruits, and you see this in the New Testament too, and of course it becomes a picture of the first fruits. This is where, again, in thankfulness to God for the provision that He has made, Israel would bring some of the early crops, some of the the early products of of the harvest, and would would bring them. The, uh, The honey of Israel largely came from the the blossom of, uh, of, of two trees and, uh, and of grapes. It was a very fragrant honey. But it's not to be brought in sacrifice or, or, or in, in, the, in the cereal offering. It's not, it's, not, it's not to be brought to the altar is the best way to put it. It's just not to be brought to the altar. It will not be a pleasing aroma to the Lord. No, no honey. No leaven, but then notice something else that sneaks up on us. Look at verse 13. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. I wonder how many of you, before hearing this verse, understood or knew the phrase the salt of the covenant what 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 is this it will show up again and again what is this salt of the covenant well it turns out that one of the covenant signs for Israel is salt now in this context of this offering salt actually has a very important purpose Especially its practical purpose shows up in the cooked offerings brought from the product of the oven or the griddle or the pan. Once you have oil and flour mixed together, and certainly once you have that combination cooked or baked, then decay starts as soon as the bread is cooked salt is a preservative and so that's the the first use of salt anyone who was making the bread for israel knew that that salt was a preservative and thus is there salt also adds flavor yes and jesus will mention that about the the salt losing its savor but the main purpose of salt was not to add taste as a was called a taste amplifier but rather it was to preserve. It's the opposite of leaven. So just understand this. In this context, salt and leaven are opposites. Leaven basically means decay. Salt means preservation. And it is the covenant that is preserved. And by the covenant, Israel is preserved. Salt then becomes the tangible metaphor for God's preserving love. And the salt then is to be a company, it is to accompany, and is to be included in any of these grain or cereal offerings, cooked or uncooked. The salt of the covenant—such an interesting phrase. There are the two of these phrases in Leviticus chapter two: most holy thing and salt of the covenant—that need to kind of stand out at us because we're going to be seeing those. The first fruits are mentioned here as chapter two comes to a close. If you offer a grain offering of first fruits to the Lord, you shall offer for the grain offering of your first fruits fresh ears. So this is corn. This is uh, this is corn. And uh, what do you do with the corn? Uh, you uh, roast with fire, crushed new grain. Now there are questions about what exactly corn means. Because the corn that we eat, and we call corn with the big ears and all this, uh, that's basically a North American uh, variety of of corn. Um, But we recognize what it means, nonetheless, whatever the size, for there to be an ear and for the grain to be rubbed, in this case, and crushed. And you shall put oil on it and lay frankincense on it. It is a grain offering. So even the tops of grain would be called ears. So if you if you just brought in a sheaf of grain, you could say wheat, barley, that top would be also an ear. And just like you would think of an ear of corn here, treated in the same way. And the priest shall burn as its memorial portion some of the crushed grain, and some of the oil with all of its frankincense it is a food offering to the Lord. So you can bring uh, this, the first fruits and, and if you do, and by the way you're told you can bring yeast and you can bring honey for the first fruits, but it's not to be burned on the altar. It's never to be burned on the altar because it is not a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now as we as we consider, we've just, we've just gone very quickly here, but at a natural pace through Leviticus 2. This is what's going to happen. It, it, it took us something like three weeks, you know, just to get a couple of verses into Leviticus. But now that we're here, we're going to confront two things. Number one, we're going to confront detail that drives us uh, to certain truths we just desperately need to see. And, and secondly, we're going to find repetition. So, you're going to… we're going to find that a sacrifice or an offering that is mentioned early is going to show up again and we saw that in exodus we saw that in exodus where the the same basic requirement would be given again and you say well why does that have to be given again well why do you have to keep telling your two-year-old the same thing over and over and over again it is because once isn't enough and we're all still too. there are many things we have to hear more than once But there's something else here. As Christians study the book of Leviticus, we have to have a a certain understanding of what we're doing here, lest we just treat this as ancient Israelite history, or even if we just understand it as God's ancient commands to Israel. And, And the wrong question for us would be, well, what are we supposed to learn from this grain offering? Or are we supposed to learn from the burnt offering, which, which is coming um, again you know, in the text, or the, uh, the peace offering, which is very, the very next we will confront in Leviticus 3? You know, what, what are we to learn from that? When we worship, should we be keeping in mind the grain offering and the, and the burnt offering and the peace offering and the sin offerings and the guilt offerings? Should we be having those in mind? The answer is no, not in any specific sense. Because the most important thing we can understand from this is that this is completely fulfilled in Christ, so much so that this is not for us what it was for Israel, which is the daily, never-ending cycle of offerings and sacrifices. We are freed not from some of this, we are freed from all of this, and it is not because God said, never mind, it is because... Jesus said it is finished and all is fulfilled. So a part of the reason why we need to study the book of Leviticus is so that with great joy we can read this and say that was magnificent. We can understand why God instructed Israel this way. We we can understand Israel's pattern of following these commanded offerings and sacrifices over and over and over again we can imagine the daily work in the temple there's no daily work in our temple not like this at all you and your family do not get up in the morning concerned with how you're going to be able to fulfill whatever sacrificial duty is looming before you there are no priests in a hereditary line who are getting up to do a cycle of priestly ministrations, which is again one of the central points the reformers made in the 16th century. The catholic priesthood had begun to look like the Jewish priesthood. That's what priesthoods do. Priest, priest. They're going to do something. You're going to have to, and, and what priests do will be ritual. And it will be pointing to the priest as the as the mediator of, of, of whatever menstruation is taking place. And so all over the world today, there are priests and who in the name of Christ are getting up and beginning the, the, the ritual. And, and again, if you take the Roman Catholic Church and what Luther called the bloody abhorrence of the mass, you actually have what is believed to be a sacrifice taking place. Place in the memorial meal is far more than that a mass by transubstantiation. And you have to understand the whole point when Jesus said it is finished is that it is finished. We, it's not that we have less need of a priest, it is that we have the great high priest, even Jesus in the heavens. He ever liveth and he ever intercedeth for us. We are freed from all of this. But you know, it's also true that we wouldn't know to a considerable degree from what we have been freed by Christ if we didn't look verse by verse and word by word through Leviticus and learn what Israel was to learn, but never to learn it as Israel, but rather as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we are together next, we will be looking at Leviticus 3 and the peace offering, and the thing to recognize that isn't in the text, it's it's in the context, the thing to recognize that isn't yet in the text is that these first three we discuss are what are termed voluntary offerings. These are voluntary offerings. The first was, was out of a, a sense of, of the need to give to God an animal, this burnt offering. In, in chapter 2, the need to give to God from the grain, the cereal. And the third is, we shall see, and, and I, I can't wait till we're together next, next Sunday morning we're going to be looking at chapter 3 in the peace offering and this has such deep covenantal meaning a lot of dots will come together in chapter 3 and we'll we'll understand but they're all voluntary because Israel isn't doing this of absolute necessity with reference to a particular sin but that will also change very quickly but when we are together next we'll be looking at the peace offering and uh, come to understand how this works for israel and uh, again there are so many covenantal points that will will come out in chapter three to us that will have uh, immediate christological significance also help to tie the biblical narrative together but we're not there yet so that's next lord's day morning as the lord allows now just a minute and we can talk about anything in the text today yes Right. Well, certainly in the memory. Certainly in the memory. But the point of the first offering, the burnt offering, is that none of it was to be retained. It was all to be burned. And we're going to see that animals are also involved in this third offering, the peace offering but some of that will be retained and indeed eaten uh, by those who participate uh, in the offering. So uh, this memorial is is to point to memory, and so that that certainly links them. Um, It is interesting that it is the portion that is burned, not the portion that is eaten, that is referred to as the memorial. And so the burning of the cereal or the, the loaf uh is to be considered in itself the memorial portion. Yes. Would the Israelis have waited for any of these grain offerings until they were in the promised land? Because I mean the wilderness they would have had before and then tweeted. Right. Not in the not in the wanderings, yes. Uh but the, the and this is pointing to when they will be domesticated and There, But, you know, even as they were in the wilderness, um, we remind ourselves that they were also in these years of preparation to go into the land of promise. And so uh, the tabernacle itself functioned as the place where these sacrifices would be done as soon as there was such product to be brought. Um, And by the time you, you get this in Leviticus, uh, there is the implication that Israel already knows exactly what all these things are and how this will work. So you ask a good question. So long as they are actively in the removal um, and in the exodus and where there is no access to food, they're fed the manna. And by the way, just to, just to amplify your point, the manna would never have worked this way because the manna disappears It it, it itself spoils, you know, it has has to be fresh every morning by definition. Yes, Kathy. In verse 14 and 16, in Mm the American standard, for the southern cooking lovers, it says grits. Grits. In 14 and 16? Mm -hmm. So that's the crushed grain. Grits of new growth. There you go, I like that. that's uh when i was heard as a boy that's how you know when you've met a yankee when they get into a restaurant and order a grit <laughs> i have to say in the culture i grew up in sometimes the word yankee was preceded by another word That's just, uh, just the way it was. And, and, and it referred to anyone who wasn't from the deep south in terms of culture. It wasn't a political affiliation. It was an ignorance of high cooking culture. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so it reminds me that someone said that, uh, you know, the first thing you look for in a southern house is the skillet and the second thing you look for is the can of bacon grease under the sink health food fanatics, southerners are (laughs) also obviously not kosher it's been a thrill to be with you this morning let's pray the lord will bless the study of his word father we pray that you'll take our study and make of it far more than we can than we could You can. May your word infinitely explode within us. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.